Well, this morning we're picking up, uh, looking as we've been doing the last few weeks at these list of instincts. We are looking at the third of the five instincts. So those first two that we looked at were the instincts of sarcasm. We spent time in Cain's story, followed by that instinct for adventure. We looked last week at Samson's story. And this week we're moving on to the third of those instincts, which I've labeled ambition, ambition. Uh, Shakespeare, who gave us these sort of five instincts we've been framing the conversation around, described this instinct as the soldier's instinct, who he described as full of strange oaths, jealous for honor, and quick to quarrel. This idea of ambition being that drive, that impulse to do something great, to achieve something great, to change the world in some way, or at least leave a mark on it, this ambition of life. I want to use Moses' story this morning to look at this drive for ambition. And perhaps it's not hard to see how Moses, at moments at least in his life, fits this description of a person of great ambition. Remember, our goal across these instincts is first to recognize how that instinct is at work in a biblical character and then how it might be at work within us. And then by seeing that instinct, what are the proper balances that we put in place in our life to check that instinct or to keep it in its proper place? Instinct is one of those things that we would certainly not say is wrong. Nobody would say to have an ambition is somehow sinful, nor would we say that our goal is to raise up a generation of ambitionless people. Wouldn't that make the world a better place? Certainly not. So what is it that ambition is, if it is a good thing, but can become something of a challenge, something that leads us, as we'll see in Moses' story, to places we might not have gone otherwise? Ambition is particularly difficult for a couple of reasons. It has helped many people do great things, achieve things, ambition in life. We're not trying to leave you ambitionless. But ambition can often feel like it's somehow a self-sacrifice or a great service that you're doing for God. And so because of it, ambition can be a difficult thing to have perspective on, to recognize, to understand how it is motivating you. One of the ways that I like to think of ambition is as a kind of poison or a drug. We all know that drugs that are created for good, if given in too small a dose or too great a dose, can either not cure the problem or actually have profound side effects. It takes a doctor and somebody with skilled wisdom and knowledge to know the exact proper dose of that drug to keep it from doing more damage, but to actually cure or preserve a life. Ambition is something like that. Too little of it, too much of it, all of a sudden we start running into problems. But it takes somebody with a certain amount of skill and wisdom to understand how much ambition can be, pros- can be properly handled without it turning bad. A-, a part of using Moses to look at ambition is recognizing the complexity of how ambition was at work within his life. And I think if you start to see it in the life of Moses, one of the things you'll quickly recognize is the complexity of ambition in our own lives. Moses is, after all, remembered as that great leader of Israel. If I said to you, name one of the greatest leaders in Scripture, you might say David, you might come up with names, but certainly pretty quickly somebody would suggest Moses. Moses leads all of Israel out of Egyptian slavery. He goes toe-to-toe and faces off with Pharaoh. He forms that ragtag people into a nation and leads them through all of the hazards of the wilderness. I mean, this is a person of pretty significant ambition to lead a nation, found a people, move them into a new promised land. But Moses also saw that great ambition, the land promised to him, ultimately go unfulfilled in his life. 
If you know Moses' story and how the final part of his story plays out, you'll remember that Moses ends his life sitting on Mount Nebo. Mount Nebo, that mountain there on the east side of this Jordan, climbed to the top of it and sat there looking at the very promised land he had for so much of his life been working towards. He sat there knowing that by God's decision, he would not cross the Jordan into the promised land, but would die there on Mount Nebo, looking at that great work of his life so close, right there before his eyes, but knowing that for him it would go unfulfilled, an ambition never fully achieved. God's decision to keep Moses from crossing into the promised land plays out because of a story we read in Numbers chapter 20. I'm going to read from it this morning if you've got your Bibles. Numbers chapter 20, verse 2 through 13. It comes toward the end of Israel's time in the wilderness. They had already spent decades together wandering all of the complexity of leading that people through. And we find Moses once again frustrated by the people that he had been called to lead. The story, Numbers chapter 20, puts us in that context. The people were once again complaining about a lack of water, and Moses goes before God to deal with this constantly complaining, grumbling Israelites that he's been leading now for decades. And so we read in Numbers chapter 20, beginning in verse 2. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we have perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Mirbah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. If you've read that story before, perhaps it seems like a pretty small thing. Moses has spent his entire life leading Israel to the promised land, and he makes one mistake— He hits the rock instead of speaking to it, and just like that, God decides to take the promised land from him, to leave that great ambition of his life unfinished for this little act of disobedience, Moses hitting a rock instead of speaking to it. To really get a sense of the monumental nature of this act, how significant this moment is in Moses' history, you really do have to reckon with the way he has handled ambition across his entire story. 
to understand that there's far more going on in this moment by Moses' words and actions than a simple, I forgot the instructions and disobeyed. When you think about Moses' life, it's helpful to break his life down into three major periods. They each happen to be 40 years, so it's an easy way of thinking of it. Those first 40 years of Moses' life was spent as a prince of Egypt, growing up in the household of Pharaoh. The next 40 were spent as a shepherd, out in the wilderness, away from his own people. Those final 40, leading Israel through the wilderness to the edge of the promised land, where he would then die on Mount Nebo. I like to think of those three periods as the period of Moses' ambition, the period of Moses' disillusionment, and the period of Moses' success. Moses' story, of course, opens with that famous scene. I imagine even many of the kids could tell us the story about Moses' life being spared, his mother placing him in a basket among the reeds of the Nile. Moses was found, discovered by one of the daughters of Pharaoh, and raised in Egypt, Egyptian home as royalty. What it meant is that there was no possibility out of Moses' reach. He, growing up in the household of Pharaoh, would have been trained in every possible skill, had all resources available to him. If there was an ambition he could have imagined, what was out of his reach? The most powerful home in all of the world. The book of Acts tells us that Moses was educated in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Yet something caused Moses in those early years to resonate with the plight of the Hebrew people. We read that he went out and looked down on them. You could imagine him in his royal garments, on some royal horse. This, that great Moses, educated, bold, a man of action and speech, and yet he looks down on his Hebrew brothers, stomping out bricks and poverty enslaved, and something in him resonates, connects. He saw an Egyptian master beating two of these Hebrews, and Moses rose up and struck down and killed the Egyptian, burying his body in the sand. You ask the question, what is it that motivated Moses in that moment? He had everything you could ever imagine wanting or needing, and yet something drew him to risk it all for the sake of these two Hebrew slaves. Was it a moment of frustration and anger that drove him to action? Again, the book of Acts tells us pretty specifically what was motivating Moses that day. When Moses was 40 years old, Acts records, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. According to Acts, what motivated Moses that day was a kind of ambition, that if he acted, that if he moved, the people would rally behind him, and he would lead them by God's choice into freedom. It's hard to imagine an ambition greater than that. I will kick off a revolution to free my people from Egypt. It really is a moment of ambition, pretty bare. Um, There are within the Hebrew tradition a set of commentaries called the Midrash, Midrashic texts. They're stories that have developed along Jewish culture and history that help explain passages of Scripture. They are not biblical, they're not considered Scripture, but they're conversations Jews had around the biblical texts. There's a famous story about these early days of Moses in Egypt in which Moses, as a young child, was sitting on the lap of Pharaoh. He reached up and took the crown off of Pharaoh's head and placed it on his own head. Pharaoh, being extremely superstitious, worried that it was a kind of omen, that one day this child would grow to actually take his throne. 
So Pharaoh gathered all of his advisors and asked their opinion. They decided to put the young child Moses to a test. They set him in the middle of a room and placed before him two bowls, one bowl full of jewels and one bowl full of glowing embers. And they decided that if he reached for the jewels, it was a sign of his ambition for Pharaoh's throne and he would need to be eliminated. If he reached for the embers, it was proof that it was just a child enamored by some shiny object in front of him. So they set the two bowls and of course Moses began to reach for the jewels. The story goes that an angel came down and moved his hand from the jewels to the coals, that he picked one up and touched it to his tongue, and so by it burned his lips and made himself slow of speech, which he later refers to in the biblical text. Now, again, this is not a biblical story, but what it represents is the way many in Jewish culture thought about Moses as a young man, and what they equated with him was a kind of ambitious reach that he was a child with great ambition, that he would reach for the jewels, the crown, and certainly Axe itself sees his striking down of the Egyptian as a kind of ambitious reaching, not for Pharaoh's crown, but a crown, to lead the Hebrew people to freedom. Of course, the great tragedy of the story, the biblical text, is that it all fails. The two men that he delivered from the Egyptian that was beating him the next day begin fighting with themselves, and as Moses comes to break it up, they begin to taunt him. Who made you prince over us? Are you going to strike us down like you struck down the Egyptian? Moses fled. Certainly part of it was because he had murdered an Egyptian. Probably not even his place in royalty would have spared him the cost of that act. But you can't help thinking he flees for more than just that. He flees having had that great action of his ambition not only fail, but turn around and used against him as a taunt. What made you think you would be our prince? That retreat kicks off the second period of Moses' life, those years as a shepherd. It is ironic, this man trained in so many great skills, world-building, nation-building, instead now finds himself on the backside of a mountain with a group of sheep in front of him, years of wandering with him. But it's also in this season that Moses encounters the burning bush. And out of that burning bush came the message, the divine call, that God was sending Moses back to Egypt to free God's people and lead them out. Now, wasn't this exactly the thing that Moses all of those years ago had tried to do? The thing he had tried to initiate, free my people, lead my people. So wouldn't you imagine in this moment, Moses, his ambitions before him, would have said, finally, absolutely, this is it, divine power for that thing I had failed at. Instead, Moses responds, but I'm slow of speech. They won't listen to me or accept me. They won't know who sent me. I'm not equipped for this task. And then finally, he lays it out bare. God, can't you please just send someone else? How can this be the same Moses? The same Moses who one day is willing to risk everything he has in power for the sake of freeing these people. And now, just a few years later, can't even entertain the possibility that he might be able to do it. I think it's actually a pretty good picture of what ambition feels like in the way that many of us experience it. It's not hard to imagine that moment of optimism at the beginning as ambition, the thing that moves him to action. But is it not now that same ambition, the disillusionment and discouragement of having failed at it, that sticks Moses' feet in the ground and keeps him from recognizing what God is calling him to do? It is not as if he has abandoned that great ambition. 
But that ambition continues to be the way he understands himself, his own failures, his own capabilities. It is that idea, that ambition, that still defines who he is and what he imagines he is now incapable of. Perhaps we recognize the first ambition in ourselves: great things we want to achieve, ways we want to live out a meaningful life, good things we hope happen. But so many of us also experience in our life this second reality of ambition, the discouragement that it brings, the frustration that we experience, that sense of failure at living up to what we had once imagined. Success, failure, both find themselves still obsessed with the evaluations of that single ambition defining all things. Of course, after God gets frustrated, gives him a miraculous staff, calls Aaron alongside him, does everything he can to mitigate Moses' response. Finally, Moses goes. And it begins that third period of Moses' life. Moses does become the leader of Israel. It's hard to imagine something more definitively successful. Plagues and miracles poured out from heaven, waters parted, Moses with that staff leading them on. But the experience of success that Moses found was probably not what he imagined it would be. What he got stuck with, this people he had long hoped to free, ended up being a pain in the neck. They complained, they rebelled, they complained about not having water and then about not having food and then after God provided the food about having the wrong kind of food and then as we come to Numbers 20, they're back to complaining about water yet again. This whole period of leading Israel in this great moment of Moses' success turned out to be constant frustration, constant complaining, nothing he had imagined. And so we read in Numbers 20, God says to Moses, go and speak to the rock. Give this grumbling and complaining people the water that they need. God showing mercy yet again. So what does Moses do? Sure, he disobeys. He strikes the rock with his staff instead of speaking to it. But there's more words Moses offers into this story that God had not instructed. God had instructed him, gather the people, speak to the rock. Moses gathers the people and speaks to the people. You rebels, he chastises them. Not God's words, Moses' words. And then he adds, notice the pronoun, must we provide water from this rock for you? Moses' ambition, his identification with this success, this thing that he had been so long after, all of a sudden begins to separate him from the people. We find Moses speaking for God, adding his own words and emotions and feelings into the message God had given him, identifying so closely that he now speaks to the people as if it is God and him against them. We Ambition has a couple of risks that we have already looked at, the way it can move us to premature action, the way it can burn us out in disillusionment. Perhaps its greatest risk is the way that if unchecked, it gradually begins to replace God. Ambition, the way we judge ourselves and the world around us, the way we define success and expectations, suddenly becomes for us God. The goal of our ambition becomes the thing that defines reality. And we begin to speak not just for ourselves before God, but as if we know what is good, true, right, and necessary. Nobody knows this better, and you'll chuckle because I'm going to quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer yet again, 
But nobody knows this better, in my opinion, than he did in his lived experience. I've given you many quotes from him before, too, but if you don't know Bonhoeffer's story well, Bonhoeffer was a young, promising theologian in Germany, studying to be an academic. It was in the early days as Hitler and the Nazi power was rising in Germany. And Bonhoeffer, this is maybe a part you don't know, had an opportunity to go to the U.S. and study at Union Theological Seminary. He took it, came to the U.S., stayed here for several months lecturing, and all of his friends and colleagues at the seminary said, you should stay here. If you go back to Germany, everybody at this point was seeing the inevitable rise, the totalitarian control Hitler would have and was already exerting over the church, and they all recognized that for the sake of Bonhoeffer's promising career, it would be far better if he stayed in the safety of the U.S., He could always go back someday. Bonhoeffer felt like he had to see it through with his people, that if he was going to be a part of rebuilding Germany after Hitler's fall, which he considered inevitable, that he needed to suffer through it with the church. And so he made the decision in the late 30s to go back into Germany and leave the U.S. Of course, he did most of his work underground, constantly trying to avoid imprisonment, but was eventually captured, and by order of Hitler himself, just a few days before the prison camp was liberated by U.S. troops, was executed to be hanged. Bonhoeffer knew what it was to have ambition and opportunity before him, but he also knew what it was to follow what God was leading in ways that might have not lined up with that ambition. It's hard to imagine, as Bonhoeffer walked to the gallows, him having not imagined more beyond that moment— Wasn't he supposed to be a part of rebuilding the church? Didn't he have more to give than what he had spent during that difficult time? Yet those who recorded his death said he moved with a kind of calm and quiet and trust. I've read it to you before, but in Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, he says this, God hates visionary dreaming. He's talking about that kind of ambition dream, that thing that we imagine would be great and good, the way we would imagine life playing out. He says, it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the community, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. And so he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. I think Bonhoeffer describes exactly what plays out in Moses' life. A vision, a dream the kind of people he imagined the Hebrews would be, the fulfillment of leading them into the promised land. And as those plans fail to play out, as his ambitions don't materialize the way he envisioned them, suddenly he begins to judge. He begins to judge the people around him for not living up to his expectations. He begins to judge God for sticking him with these difficult people. And in the end, we begin to judge even ourselves. Despair and disillusionment for things having not played out as we had imagined. Here's where our constant fixation on that ambition, that dream, leads us. It leads us to replace what God is doing with what we would have him do, with our demands and our evaluations and our expectations eclipsing 
what God is actually leading and offering. It causes us to become the judge of everything by our sense of how ambition is being fulfilled. And so we too start to judge others for holding us back, for expecting too much, for not helping the way they should. We start to judge God for making us this way and not giving us the right gifts or not answering our prayers that we've prayed so earnestly. And in the end, we judge ourselves. We finally succumb to that disillusionment, frustration, and bitterness. We're not capable. I think this is why God responds so strongly to Moses' actions. Moses was not just disobedient. He didn't just get the instructions wrong and hit the rock when he should have spoke to it. What was at work in Moses' life had long been at work. A kind of ambition that now in this experience of success was causing him to lose place, to lose God, to lose a sense of what God was doing and his relationship to him. Now that he is so close to that final ambition being fulfilled, he is at the greatest risk of all of imagining that it's his achievement, that he has done it that he is like God, we. You shouldn't be naive about how ambition can rob you of how God is leading and what God is doing, how it can cause your world with all of its massive promises to actually shrink into a small world of your own self-obsessions, your own self-judgments, your own expectations of others and God and yourself. So one of the things we've been doing in this series is asking, how is it that you check that? If perhaps you've recognized that kind of ambition or that goal within you, as we said at the beginning, the goal is not to rob you of all of that ambition, but how do you keep that ambition in its proper place? How do you check it from leading you to this place that it led Moses? Um, There's an interesting moment when God was speaking with Moses. Moses, it was earlier before this, frustrated at the complaining people. And he asked God to explain how in the world he will do it. How will I reach the promised land with these people you've stuck me with? God responded to him in that moment. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now, presence makes a lot of sense. The pillar of fire, the pillar of smoke, the parting waters. If we're going to make it, it would be nice to have God's presence with us. But what in the world does rest have to do with reaching that goal? What does rest have to do with getting the people to the promised land? What does rest have to do with fulfilling ambition? I think Sabbath may be the best test of all for putting ambition in its proper place. To get that, you have to understand the way Sabbath worked for Moses and the people of Israel. It's unfortunate that for many of us, we tend to think of Sabbath as a kind of life hack. That if you will take one day off, you'll be able to get even more done on the other six. That rest is a way of sort of energizing yourself to achieve more than you could have achieved without the rest. But that's not at all what is going on when the Bible speaks about Sabbath or rest. Instead, Sabbath is a check on what you are capable of achieving. One way of saying it is Sabbath is an acknowledgement, an acceptance, that I will only ever achieve six-sevenths of what I'm capable of achieving in profits in achievements, and rewards, whatever that great ambition is, right from the beginning, I will acknowledge that only six-sevenths of it, six out of the seven days, will go toward it. Leo Tolstoy, one of the great Russian novelists, has a great definition. He says this, If then I were asked for the most important advice I could give, 
that which I consider to be the most useful to the men of our century, I should simply say, in the name of God, stop a moment. Cease your work. Look around you. I think that's a good definition of what Sabbath rest means. Stop. Set it all down. The goals, the ambition, the plan, the work, the expectations, the judgment, the whole swirling energy of the ambition. Stop. One of my favorite stories, and it works really well, because this is the week the Olympics start, so I have an Olympic illustration for you. It just happened to work out this way, so this one's for you. Uh, Many of you are familiar with the famous story of Eric Little. Uh, The movie Chariots of Fire was based on him, the famous runner in the 1920s. He uh, was torn in life with two great passions and callings. One was that he was one of the fastest men in the entire world running. He was uh, believed to, uh, to, to win the gold medal in the 100 meter at the Paris Olympics that year. But he also had a calling to be a missionary. He was extremely passionate about serving in China. And so for much of his life, early on, there was a tension between these two passions, these two callings. In the movie, uh, it's not probably something he actually said, but the way they write it in the movie, Chariots of Fire, is they have him say, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. This tension between these two callings or ambitions. Uh, He is characterized in that movie against a sort of foil character, someone like him but with very different motives, his friend and running competitor, Abrahams. Abrahams describes his own running this way. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide, with only 10 seconds to justify my whole existence. In other words, I run to prove myself, to give meaning to my life. And then you have little, I have purpose, I want to be a missionary, but I'm also fast, and I don't know, it feels good when I run fast. He doesn't have the kind of simplicity or clarity that Abrahams has. The story goes that Liddell was scheduled to run in the 100 meters, scheduled to win, most likely, the 100-meter gold, until the schedule for the Olympics came out, and he realized that the opening heats of the 100-meter were scheduled to take place on a Sunday. It had long been Little's tradition to never run on the Sabbath, not for personal practice or competition. He simply did not run on Sundays. And so you can imagine the frustration of coaches and fans and Olympic committees when he informed them he planned not to run in the 100 meters because the opening rounds were a Sunday. People were frustrated, frustrated and annoyed. He ended up running in the 400 meter, a race he had not competed in before, and spectators called his run that day inspired because he set a world record and ended up winning the gold in it. It's easy to sort of walk away with that being the conclusion of the story, right? If you honor God by taking that one day off, you'll win another gold medal anyways, right? Uh, There's something more going on in Little's practice of Sabbath. There's a great biography on his life by Sally Magnuson who writes about his later years as well. After this whole Olympics, the running period of his life, he did actually become a missionary and found himself imprisoned in China during the beginning of the Second World War. He, along with several others who were in the country, Westerners were caught up and taken into a kind of internment camp during the conflict. She tells the story that one day, a Sunday morning, a group of prison kids came to him and asked him to help, to help judge and help referee games that they had set up to take place. Of course, what does Liddell refuse to do on Sundays? He refuses to participate, gives them the gear and sends them off and says another, maybe another day. 
The following Sunday, these kids showed back up and explained to him that the previous Sunday, without a referee, their games had turned into full-fledged fistfights. Some of them still bore the marks of it, and that they really needed him to come and officiate these games. So Magnuson records that he set aside his practice of the Sabbath and went and participated in their games. She writes this. He would not run on a Sunday for an Olympic gold medal in the 100 meters and all the glory in the world. But he refereed a game on Sunday. He broke his unbreakable principle just to keep a handful of imprisoned youngsters at peace with each other. Here's the way I think you should think about Sabbath, and I think what Liddell understood. His practice of Sabbath was not some kind of a pharisaical, if I do this, then somehow God will bless me with energy or even better things because I obeyed. I think he understood his own personal need to practice a Sabbath to keep his ambition, what he is capable of, in check. Little used his Sabbath to keep his running in its proper vocational place. He used it to check ambition. He was, after all, more than just a runner, with more going on in his life than just a gold medal to prove himself. His life was about more than a single race, even a single Olympic race. His identity was made for bigger categories, and he knew he needed the Sabbath to restrain his own ambition, not to be less, but so that his life might be worth more. Where his colleagues saw that as confusion and a lack of focus, Little had peace and a deep contentment. He ran, after all, because it pleased God. He kept the Sabbath because there was nothing he needed to prove by running or winning. He was willing to sacrifice even an Olympic medal. For little, a medal didn't mean all that much. He had an ambition for something even more. I think that's the question all of us should be asking of our own ambition. Are we capable of setting it down? Are we capable of giving it up unfinished? Are there things in life that we have worked for years to achieve that we might accept might not be achieved in this lifetime? What are you working on? What are you working for that you find yourself struggling to set down? Not just to stop doing for 24 hours, but to stop thinking about and worrying about and wrestling with and planning and plotting. Are there things that you are simply willing to walk away from, trusting and believing that God will do more with them than you could? Moses finally found himself sitting there on Mount Nebo, looking out at a promised land that now he knew he would never step foot into. I think it was ultimately in Moses' life a test of this kind of Sabbath rest. Could he trust God? Could he die there on that mountain, not bitter, frustrated, but believing and knowing that God was at work even as he now rested, as that great ambition of his life went unfinished, unrealized. And the same question comes to us, the same test of ambition. Can we set it down? Can we just stop? Can we hand it over to God? I'll close with this and we'll go into prayer and worship. But a few years ago, I was listening to a lecturer talk about uh, New Testament geography. And one of the things they were discussing was the possible locations for Jesus' transfiguration. That scene where he goes up on the mountain and suddenly he begins to glow in bright light. And they find himself transfigured. And the uh, professor was arguing that it probably takes place on Mount Tabar, which is in the Galilee region. So within the promised land there by the Sea of Galilee. 
And as he was describing it, he read the passage that stated, as Jesus was transfigured there, he was suddenly joined by Elijah on one side and Moses on the other. It wasn't a point of his lecture, but I found myself incredibly moved to think Moses was there in the promised land, not in his earthly worn out body of ambition, but there transfigured with Christ standing in the promised land. I'll end by just saying there is nothing ultimately lost. There's nothing that we lay down that is ever really sacrificed. There's nothing that we let go of that God by his grace doesn't hand back to us in ways more enjoyable and greater than we could have imagined. Moses did not lay forever outside the promised land on Mount Nebo. By God's grace, even amongst his own ambition and disobedience, he found himself there, finally, with Christ. And so it is, I think, with all of our great ambitions. We lay them down, we trust them to God, and we find in the end things which we never could have achieved or received on our own. Let's close in prayer and we'll worship together this morning. Heavenly Father, I do realize how easy it is for us to get caught up in what we're doing, to find ourselves lost in these daydreams of how we would like life to go and what we would like to achieve and what we would like to own and the places we would like to go. God, good things, ministry things. It's so easy for us to get obsessed with these ambitions we have for meaning and value. And God, we see in the life of Moses how those things begin to eclipse you. And God, I recognize in my own life, and I'm sure others do as well, how those obsessions so often pull us away from you. How they leave us frustrated and jaded and bitter. We find ourselves disillusioned by them. Frustrated at others and often by you for prayers we imagine unfulfilled the way we would have them. God, I see how my own obsessions in this life can keep me from recognizing what you're doing, from participating in what you're doing. So we pray this morning that you, by the power of your spirit, would teach us what it is to rest. That you would give us the advice you gave to Moses, that we move forward with your presence and with rest. That your yoke is light, that we do not carry the weight of proving ourselves or making things happen but that you do that work by your grace and by your mercy. So we commit ourselves to be people of Sabbath, people of rest, not so that we could get more done or make more of ourselves, but God, even this morning, acknowledging that we will live lives that are not fulfilling everything we possibly could, but lives that make room and space to receive from you, to see what you're doing and to align ourselves with it God, we know at times that may mean making less money, getting less done, having less things, achieving less goals. But God, we're reminded of your words. What does it gain us to gain the whole world and and yet lose our souls? And so this morning we pray that by this rest, you would pour your spirit into us, that we would receive you, that your grace and mercy would become greater that we would see more of it as we set down our ambitions, as we loosen our grip on them. And we pray we would receive things from you as Moses did that would leave us worshiping you still in greater ways, that you would be glorified and that we would find ourselves participant in that thing you are doing, the salvation you are working, your kingdom coming.
and that we would, in the end, find it greater joy and greater peace and greater meaning than anything we had imagined or constructed for ourselves. So we worship you this morning with that rest in our hearts, in this moment, setting down our work, turning our attention to you and worshiping you and receiving by the power of your spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen.